Welcome to Greenfish Blue Oceans, the podcast where stories about seafood are good for you in the ocean. I'm Maureen Berry. This week, I'm tackling I is for ice and I-U-C-N. Hey, welcome to the I is for ice part of the program. This episode is packed with information about ice. First, I'm going to talk about a few minutes about the relationship between ice and seafood. Then I'm going to tell you a story about the first time I saw a glacier in the French Alps, finishing up with glacier ice. In the IUCN part of the program, we'll explore the high seas and what is being done now to protect this mostly unchartered area. It's no secret that ice and seafood go together. Hit up any grocery store or fish market and you'll see what I mean. Whole fish and shellfish are buried in shaved ice. And kudos to anyone in the shaved ice machine business. Now, since seafood decomposes quickly once it's brought out of the water, ice is critical to maintain freshness and flavor. But ice also slows bacterial growth. On a sustainable fishing vessel, the fish are held in containers with ice. Some of those massive trawlers are out on the high seas for weeks and months. Think of the ice. Now, think about what no ice means for the fish. Seafood pirates or those fishing for illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing aren't super concerned about whether there's enough ice for the fish. Hell, some of the illegal fishing captains aren't even concerned about the humans on board. So the moral of the story, know where your fish comes from. So when you're shopping for fish at the market, remember to bring your cooler bag, and if you're really awesome, bring a few frozen gel packs from home. Or ask the person behind the fish counter for a small bag of ice for transport. Once you get your fish home, you should not store your fish on ice. But do keep your fish in the coldest part of the refrigerator, which is usually the back. And if you aren't going to cook that day or the next, toss that package in the freezer until you're ready to use it. And then thaw it out 24 hours ahead before you cook. All right, so that was short and sweet, wasn't it? Um, Since this is such a new thing to me, I'm going to try something a little bit different today. I'm going to tell a little story. So when I was 30 years old, during the early winter of 1991, I traveled from the Florida Keys, where I lived and managed a 64-seat rundown diner, to the French Alps to ski. And it was the first time I was awed by the beauty of the aquamarine-colored glacial ice. After a few days swooshing down the slopes in Chamonix, my fiancé at the time and I began our trip to Agla du Midi and Valle Blanche, considered by some to be the most famous off-piste ski run in the world. You might like to know, I was a beginner skier. Now, so this wasn't Everest, but Valle Blanche is over 12,000 feet in altitude and one of the tallest mountains I had ever skied. We rode the tram to the mountaintop in Chamonix. There were maybe 30 or so people in our group, but there were many groups skiing that day, and every day, in fact, in Agula Midi. 
we boarded the cable car that would carry us to the 12-mile run. 30 minutes or so later, we arrived to the most gorgeous sight I had ever witnessed. The snow was brilliant white and went on for an eternity. At this point, there was no turning back. The only way down was to ski the glacier and down the mountain. I was terrified, but my ego and pride kept me grounded. In groups of ten, tethered only by a small rope tied around our waists, we set off down a set of steep steps that had been carved into the snowy mountainside, just like the kind of mountaineering thing you see on National Geographic. I held my ski poles in my left hand and held, or maybe clutched is a better word, a thick rope with my right hand. A sheer drop-off lay to my right. Untouched snow glistened like diamonds in the morning sun. The guides carried our skis. There were two guides per group of 10, or maybe 12, I can't remember. When I arrived at the bottom of the steps, a vast white plain spread before my eyes as far as I could see. It was early morning, and puffs of smoke from our breathing filled the air as the guides untied us and told us about our day journey back down the mountain. Stay with the group. If you start to lose control, God forbid, my inner voice thought, though Lord knows I probably muttered it out loud. And then they continued, snowplow, hard. Do not try to be a hero and help your fellow skiers if somebody skis off. I didn't think at this level of skiing that someone would be foolish enough to ski away from the tour. But sometimes fate has its way, no matter what one's intentions are. Just before lunch, a woman in my group lost control of her skis. I was near her when it happened. My gut impulse was to reach out and grab her. I'm sure I held my pole out and probably said, hey, or something vague. It's hard to remember because the whole day seemed surreal, like I was on my own Nat Geo adventure. And I might have said, hey, under my breath. I know for a fact I planted my poles as deep in the hard-packed surface as I could and froze. Then the guide's voice boomed across the vast wilderness. Snowplow! 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 His skis cut across the ice after her. He could only stop her by skiing ahead of her and digging his skis sideways into the mountainside. She skied directly into him. They both went down. The second guide swooshed in to help. A crevasse lay 20 yards ahead of them. It was horrifying. That feeling of helplessness was unnerving. I remember being shaken to my core. I had no desire to be near her, as if her mere presence was bad luck. I felt sorry for her, and I was mad at her. Mad for marring my day with her, what, carelessness? I don't think that's what it was, but I don't think I was the only person that felt that way. Maybe I was. The thing is, it could have happened to any of us. But this is the woman who swooshed down the slopes with Grace earlier in the week with my fiancé when I waffled at the top of the mountain, afraid to ride down the moguls, only moving when they turned at the bottom and were out of sight. So I was jealous, too. And my fiancé, a generous man, he was the bigger person, kinder, more mature. We did sit with her at lunch, and she was visibly shaken. 
He skied close to her after lunch and for the remainder of the day. I stayed away. I knew the dangers of extreme skiing on the glacier, but it was the thrill of the unknown, the excitement of conquering my fears. Later that afternoon, as we walked uphill in a single file with our skis slung over our shoulders, an avalanche exploded across the valley. You know, you hear it and think, what was that? But in your gut, you already know. And then you start to pray for survivors. The backside down the mountain was a sloppy, wet, heavy snow. Huge trees loomed. This was where I was afraid I'd get hurt. The shadows were long in the day, the air a bit warmer as I descended. I was exhausted and exhilarated. I unlocked the bindings on my skis in the parking lot. I was awash in emotion, wanted to kiss the ground and cry. My calves ached with relief. I headed toward the yellow school bus that would take me back to the hotel. My fiancé and the woman were on the bus, laughing and talking. I plopped into an empty seat, waved. She waved back, a grateful, enthusiastic wave. Her hands were crippled with arthritis. I knew that, but I didn't remember that on the mountain. And I wondered if that was why she couldn't stop herself. I felt a pang of regret for feeling so mean toward her. My fiancé blew me an air kiss. I could tell by the expression on his face he was proud of me for making it down the hill alone. I leaned back in my seat, shut my eyes, and a snapshot of that glacier, a wall of sea-blue ice, filled my dreams. So what does that glacier have to do with seafood? Well, stick around for the second part of the program. Hey, welcome back to the I is for IUC and part of the program. Before I move on, what did you think about the last part of the program? I'd love to know um, when I try out something new to get a little feedback. So hit me up on Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. Did you know that glacial ice covers 10% of the Earth's surface? That kind of ice includes glaciers, ice caps, and ice sheets like Greenland and Antarctica. Glaciers contain about 75% of the Earth's fresh water, water that isn't available to us. When scientists talk about the glaciers melting, they're mostly talking about sea ice around Greenland and the Arctic. Sea ice is frozen ocean water. It's critical to the health of our planet because it influences climate, wildlife, and people. So how do we know the ice is melting? I myself am not a climate change skeptic, but there are plenty of people out there. However, scientists use satellites to measure the ice melt, and they are telling us that the ice is melting, but they've only measured the sea ice since 1979. Now, I can assure you, if you've ever seen a glacier, and many of you probably have been to Alaska and or have done some mountain climbing, you wouldn't think that a little melting ice would make a difference. These are huge, monstrous glaciers. But this is me talking, a layman. Scientists know better. There is much to learn yet about what the future will hold for us with this melting ice situation. One thing is certain, we can't go on with business as usual. 
Enter IUCN, the International Union of the Conservation of Nature. IUCN is an international agency with 15 themes. One that might interest you, and certainly interests me, is the marine and polar theme. They have two key spotlights going on right now. One is a high seas expedition to Walter's Shoal. Walter's Shoal lies about 700 miles south of Madagascar. This 26-day expedition's focus is to understand the ecosystems of the high seas to help build laws to govern these fragile resources. Right now, there are no laws governing the high seas in terms of fishing, traffic, pollution, or conservation. And the second spotlight at IUCN in the marine and polar theme is a 450-page report titled Explaining Ocean Warming, Causes, Scale, Effects, and Consequences. Now, I don't expect you will read the entire report. I did not. But I did leave a link in the show notes if you'd like to take a peek. The bottom line? There are seven recommendations in the conclusion, from the need for global policy action to updated risk assessments to economic analysis. But at the heart of it all is the effect of CO2 emissions. We must address the ocean in all parts when we talk about climate change, from the melting glaciers to the deep dark trenches at the ocean bottom, and every marine species and ecosystem in between. Change is already underway and already locked in for future decades, according to the IUCN report. Change may not be obvious because we can't see it, but it can be altered. And it's up to us to make that change flow in a more positive direction. I'm wearing a t-shirt today from Phipps Conservatory in Pittsburgh that says, If not us, who? If not now, when? I think the T says it all, don't you? Do you need an idea about what you can do now? Head over to the IUCN website, sign up for its newsletter, find a job, become a member, join a commission, or on a tangible level, plant a tree. Okay, that's a wrap. And thanks for listening to Greenfish Blue Oceans. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. Next up, J is for jellyfish and Jewfish. Have a great two weeks.